The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, uh, is also in partnership uh, with Roger Wiegand, uh, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, we do have a special introductory offer for those of you who might want to try these newsletters, uh, miningstocks.com. You can go there to miningstocks.com or call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426 for more information. The best website to go to to follow all that I do, including access to this radio show, is jtaylormedia, that's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com. As I say, you can access this show, all three of those newsletters that I just mentioned, as well as uh, do uh, the video interviews that I've done with various CEOs of companies and other television appearances that I make from time to time. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, they are American Bonanza, Brazil Resources, Helio Resources, Lucky Strike Resources, Metanor Resources, Merrick's Gold, American Manganese, Atocha Resources, Meadow Bay Gold, and Marathon Gold. I've just returned from Asia where I spoke at Academy and Finance Conferences in Hong Kong, Taipei, and Singapore. The energy level there in those cities are really amazing, especially Hong Kong where my wife, uh, Teresa, and I uh, spent a couple of extra days to tour the city. But I, for one, am somewhat skeptical about the sustainability of growth in Asia. No, the Asian people are certainly working hard and they're saving their money. Those are the positive aspects that I think bode well for that part of the world. It's something that we in the West have long forgotten. That's how you create wealth. You work hard and save your money and uh, are creative, of course. Uh, that helps as well. But um, the Asians um, definitely have that going for them. The thing that I am somewhat concerned about, um, the ideas expressed by Dr. Jim Walker, for example, who was on our show a few weeks back, and that is that this, is, uh, this part of the world is very much still a, um, 
a planned economy, planned economic system in most of these countries, more or less. Of course, that's the direction that we in the West have been heading towards, and I think it's uh, it's sad but true. Hong Kong, uh, Milton Friedman used to talk about Hong Kong being this vibrant city, and he used to hold it out as an example of what free market economics uh, would do for the prosperity of nations. Well, that certainly is true, and Hong Kong is just uh, it's just just so much energy, so much. Uh, so much on the up and up. So many things going on well for that for that city, <clears throat> and uh, now of course the, uh, it has been handed over to the uh, to the communists, the Chinese communists, in 1997 when the British stepped away. Um, I picked up a very interesting book in Hong Kong titled "Underground Front: The Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong." The Chinese communists had a significant presence in Hong Kong even while the British uh, still ruled there in 1997. But when Hong Kong was turned over to the communists in 1997, the, uh, the, the Chinese Communist uh, Party uh, made sure that the large corporate interests were co-opted uh, by themselves. Uh, essentially, they bought them out, and so that there wouldn't be, uh, so that there would be a smooth uh, turnover uh, of power. And that certainly has happened. Uh, but what is really interesting to me is the fact that. Uh, forget the ideology, the, China, the communist ideology. It's really about one-party rule. It's about retaining control. Uh, one country, two systems is the way the communists view Hong Kong. But the whole nation uh, of an egalitarian society, as I say, is more of a Marxist idea. Uh, the Leninist notion of, of uh, consolidation of power is very much obvious. And, in fact, the Chinese uh, communists were somewhat critical, as I understand it, in reading from this book, uh, of a more egalitarian approach taken by the British before they left. So it's it's interesting, but here's the point I'm trying to get at. You have a system that is uh, that is determined based on political whims and wishes of the ruling elite rather than on bottoms, bottom-up market forces. Uh, and this is, I think, uh, very interesting, um, and I think it's also something that we need to keep our eyes on because while the Chinese and the Asians in general are working extremely hard and they're saving their money um, and they're optimistic because life is getting better, I think at the same time we do have to pay attention to the ideas as expressed by Dr. Walker, uh, those 64 million uh, empty apartment buildings in Hong, uh, throughout China certainly is something uh, that, that needs to be paid attention to. And in the West, of course, we are following in those footsteps. I find it very interesting that as I read over the, uh, the modus operandi of the Communist Party in Hong Kong, it seems so much like the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Society in the United States, which I think really ideologically has much in common with the, with the uh, Chinese or with the communist ideology, and it really has little to do with egalitarian interest, uh, but more to do with the ruling elite. Certainly we see that, and we've seen that with the Federal Reserve, the creation of the Federal Reserve, for the purpose of, as Ed Griffin has said on his show, the purpose of um, really socializing the risks and privatizing profits. Well, certainly, interestingly enough, that is, seems to be what's going on throughout the world more and more. And Asia, well, can it be the engine of growth? Can it bail out the West as the West is in decline, as we continue to try to live beyond our means, and we've tried it for so long Obviously, I think that is breaking down now. The laws of, of markets, the laws of nature are prevailing, and we're seeing it again. One week later, after supposedly uh, Europe had fixed their problems, we're seeing interest rates rise dramatically 
in Italy and elsewhere uh, in the so-called or the, those countries that are considered to be weaker. So clearly things are not fixed. Uh, I have been saying in the talks that I made, uh, the various speeches that I made in Asia, that we are in a situation where uh, the world has run into so much debt it cannot be repaid. It's very similar, I think, that uh, Ian Gordon's uh, uh, idea of the Kondratiev cycle, uh, where uh, countries, and in this case the whole global economy, is pushed up to the limits of debt, and that the debt is so onerous it cannot be repaid that the only the only way to go is towards a uh, towards a um, deleveraging of the system. And as the system is delevered, it's going to be very, very painful. And it's going to be very painful for the paper money system. And I think this is really what's playing into the hands of gold. And I say forget the nominal price of gold because we, if we are seeing a deleveraging uh, environment where debt has to be pulled off the, off the books, uh, we're going to see, at least if history is a guide, we're going to see the rise in the real price of gold continue or at least remain strong for some time to come. And I would point out, as I've said many times on this show, that uh, back in 19, uh, 2007, uh, 2008, I should say, July of 2008, four Lehman Brothers uh, sort of ushered in this major deleveraging process we saw an ounce of gold would purchase only 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. That's a fund that in, includes all manner of items. Uh, we have, um, uh, you know, energy, primarily a lot of energy, heavy, heavily weighted towards energy, but also base metals and food items and clothing items. And 17% is what an ounce of gold would have purchased of that basket of commodities before Lehman Brothers, and then it went to 44% by March of 2009. Came back to about 30% as the risk trade went back on. People became optimistic as, uh, as helicopter Ben Bernanke was showering the country with trillions of dollars. Uh, but clearly, those dollars are made out of debt. So all Uncle Ben did was increase the debt. The, no, the enormous amount of debt in the global economy, and we've bumped up against it again, obviously, seems to me. And now we're going to see, uh, we, we've seen more consternation, fear in the markets. And uh, the last I looked, as of yesterday, the uh, announce of gold would purchase now about 46% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Well, this is all very important because what it means is that uh, with the real price of gold rising so dramatically, the profits of major gold mining companies have been soaring, just really outstanding. The profits have been outstanding. The shares have not yet caught up, and I think that is really good news for those of you who have not yet purchased shares of, or, or allocated a portion of your portfolio to gold mining shares. I would encourage you to buy a basket of them. And if you're more conservative, go with the big household names. If you're looking for a larger return on your investment, you might want to start looking down market at some of the companies that I cover more frequently in my newsletter. Uh, there is a virtual growth, a boom in this sector out of Canada. Huge numbers of gold mining companies raising capital, putting high-risk capital in the ground. There's a lot of very interesting projects, gold deposits being formed. And the big guys are not particularly good at finding this gold. They are going to have to look down market to smaller companies that are better at exploring and developing gold deposits. And there, I think it's where the biggest percentage gains are going to come from, from the junior mining sector, which is why that is what I focus on primarily. Well, today we're not going to talk only about, in fact, today 
We're going to talk more about energy than gold. Um, I am going to have Amir, uh, actually we're going to have Brian Kerwin as soon as we go to break in another minute or so. Brian Kerwin, he's the president and CEO of American Bonanza, will be with us to talk about his company's gold mine, a startup operation in Arizona. It's looking very good. Last time I looked, it looked like a very undervalued stock. Uh, we'll see what, uh, what the latest is from Brian. But we are going to focus largely on energy today because even though I am very bearish on the global economy, we are going to need to have energy to heat our homes and to keep us cool in the summer times. Uh, there is a dramatic, you know, there's a very strong demand for energy in Asia. And Asia, while it may not be the engine of growth some people think, I believe that Asia is still a, an ascending power, an economic power in general, that part of the world. The demand for energy is going to rise. So we're going to be talking to Amir Adnani. He's the president and CEO of Uranium Energy. That's the first company, the first new uranium producer in many years. They are now starting to produce uranium very profitably uh, from Texas. And then we're going to have another very interesting discussion with Patrick Larrisey. He's the chairman and CEO of Balkan Minerals. And Patrick will talk to us about his very interesting company, some uh, interesting things they're doing there, in particular a potash, a potash spinoff that I think looks very attractive for people who buy these shares now. Uh, but Patrick is also going to talk to us about the enormous um, shale gas potential uh, in the United States and uh, something I think that is very bullish for America, uh, one of the bright spots I think that is uh, worth paying attention to. So uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Brian Kerwin as soon as we go to a commercial break. Uh, and Brian will talk to us about his uh, gold mining operation in Arizona. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Brian Kerwin. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Merix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American. Bonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. 
Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources, Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring free gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. Or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatsjab Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Lucky Strike Resources Limited conducts due diligence drilling on the claim with a historical resource of 1.5 billion tons of coal in Mongolia. The project is directly north of China, where the coal consumption tripled in the last 10 years to 3.2 billion tons in 2010. Lucky Strike's management team has a proven track record, having contributed significantly in the building of a multi-billion dollar company operating in China. Please visit our website at www.luckystrikeresources.com and get in on this investment opportunity at the ground floor. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I'm looking at the uh, at the market today, and the equity markets are getting slammed real hard again today. The Dow is down 263, NASDAQ down 67 as I speak to you here. This is, a, uh, I believe, a very troubled market. It's a time when People are losing confidence in paper money, and they're turning to uh, the money that the markets have chosen over many centuries, and that is gold. And so gold is becoming more precious. And as I said uh, last segment, I don't care too much about the nominal price of gold. What I really care about is the real price of gold. And the real price of gold has been rising dramatically relative to uh, other items uh, like energy and materials and so the profit margins of gold mining companies have been surging, and we follow, I follow seven different companies. It's just, they're just remarkable. Huge amount of cash going into the big guys. And uh, the margins, though, are also very good for smaller producers, and I'm very pleased to have with me Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of American Bonanza Gold Corp. It's a company that's just about to start uh, production in Arizona. It trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol BZA, or BZA, as our friends in 
uh, in Canada and, uh, and um, Australia, like to say, uh, in the United States, you can buy the stock under the symbol ABGFF. Uh, 191 million shares outstanding, 61 cents earlier today, giving it a market cap of $116 million. Welcome, Brian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. Good to have you back again. We've talked about the economics of your project in the past, uh, several months back, and I want to get into that. But now is a very exciting time for you because you are approaching production. Um, Brian, I understand that you are really, I mean, I guess you're ready to start production or you're doing some tests of the mill, I guess, right now. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We uh, we have recent news out that, that sort of gives an update on the progress, and very much of the construction is complete now. And so uh, the next step, uh, which will be taking place uh, quite shortly here, um, is to uh, start bumping, you know, start hitting uh, the motors and the control panels with electricity and make sure they don't burn up, and then... Uh, you know, turn the motors over, turn the mills over, fill it up with water, then fill it up with mud, then fill it up with uh, bull-bearing rock. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's a very exciting time uh, for uh, a development company turning into a production company, and um, and we're right in the midst of that right now. So you're uh, you're putting, I guess, non-gold-bearing rock through to test it, and you're putting water through to make sure there aren't leaks and so forth, and is that it? Yeah, that's right. You go one step at a time. You know, you make sure... You, hit, you charge everything up, make sure that, that all the electricals are working, and then you put water in it, make sure all the plumbing's working, and then you put um, barren rock in it uh, to make sure that it all grinds it up and it moves through and everything works, and then you put gold-bearing material through it. And so uh, we're just launching that uh, uh, right now. Brian, you know, uh, I think it's very interesting. Gold mining projects are very interesting. Then none of them are alike. Uh, exploring for gold and other minerals are very, it's a very exciting, very interesting thing for geologists to speculate how Mother Nature put things down. You know, and there's plenty of technical things. There's so much science that goes into building a mining project. But what we care about most in this show is making money and what does the stock price look like relative to where, you know, what people might expect to get out of it? In other words, what I like to look at is cash flow, cash flow, uh, projected cash flow. Now, you don't have any yet, but if things go the way you hope, you're going to have some pretty soon. When do you, when are you targeting a, an actual startup for commercial production? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of dedicating the fourth quarter here to that startup campaign. Uh, and our objective is to um, to be at full production um, in January, mm-hmm. so that uh, 2012 is a full production year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the target, and I might just and I'm certainly expecting you'll hit that, Brian. But I'd also like to just uh, let those listeners who may not be that familiar with gold mining realize, or mining in general, realize that when you're putting projects into production, there can be some slippage from time to time. I'm not expecting that to happen with your company, but on the other hand, more often than not, there's there's issues that you don't expect that can come up, come in, can come into play. But what I'd really like to ask you about again, if you can help our listeners understand a little bit about the economics of your project, I think you you've done a scoping study in the past. How much or will you put through what are the grades, how much gold do you expect to produce, and at what cost? If you can give us some of those, uh, some of those numbers, that would be very helpful, I think, for people to understand uh, what your project uh, is going to bring to investors. Sure. The, um, the um, uh, feasibility numbers um, are, uh, 
are all based on 450 tons a day of throughput. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, our mill that we purchased will actually handle closer to 700, 750 tons a day. Mm. So we have a built-in expandability there, but the, the, the feasibility numbers were all based on 450 tons a day. Um, the highest, uh, the highest um, goal price that we uh, estimated, that we used in estimations during the feasibility study, um, was $1,400 an ounce gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, undiscounted cash flows at that point, uh, pre-tax, uh, total $168 million. So, uh, you know, based on our, our current market cap, the, um, the, the, the pre-tax cash flows at $1,400 you know, substantially exceed our current market cap. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the, the, you're, you're right in, um, in highlighting that, that this is a complex um, endeavor that we're involved in here, and there are many, many things that we need to keep track of, both from an operational point of view and a scientific point of view, but... Some of the advantages that we have at Copperstone are a certain amount of predictability that isn't, um, that isn't uh, well, it's better than, say, industry average. Um, and, and that gets back to the actual makeup of the ore itself, which is an oxide material. It appears to be a primary oxide material. And uh, that simplifies processing uh, fairly substantially. And, of course, starting this plan up is, is the processing. So um, we actually have a, an ore body type. Uh, with free gold in an oxide material um, that is simpler and more straightforward than many. And, uh, and so we, we anticipate, you know, um, that there will be little uh, startup issues that have to be handled. That's the way these things go, and it's how you react to it and how your team reacts to it uh, that really uh, produces the final results. Um, but we aren't up against as many unknowns as uh, a lot of mines are. Brian, could you tell us uh, what your cash cost per ounce uh, figures to be? You gave us sort of a global number, uh, a present value number, which is very helpful. But could you tell us what your cash cost, average cash cost per ounce is expected to be uh, during this mine life? And what is the mine life? Sure. Um, the, well, the mine life is uh, 6.3 years, mm-hmm. um, although that is uh, what we quantified in the feasibility study. Um, the ore body remains open entirely um, down dip. Uh, we have a number of other exploration projects or another exploration targets, uh, many of which we have drill holes in that are very encouraging that we've you know um, announced uh, over time as we've done those drill campaigns. Um, but you know we feel that that there's a lot of upside to this ore body. Um, the 3.6 years is just. Uh, uh, a, a result of the feasibility study, which used $962 gold as the base case gold price. So that's what gives you these numbers. Mm-hmm. So we, even at, at, at higher gold prices that we're experiencing now, um, obviously that'll have an impact to uh, the mine life. Uh, I can't quantify that right now, but um, but obviously it will. And uh, because it's the higher the gold price, the lower the cutoff grade, the sure. more tons of ore that you have. Um, and we, we plan... Um, early in the mine life to do a fairly aggressive underground uh, drilling uh, campaign in order to extend those uh, resources down dip. So by the end of year one or into year two of the mine life, which means 2012, 2013, um, we'll, be, we'll be involved in a, a very serious uh, expansion campaign. We just stopped drilling um, in 2008 due to the credit crisis when we, uh, we kind of changed the business philosophy for uh, Bonanza and uh, decided to get into production and, and into producing uh, revenues in these gold prices 
um, and then worry about the uh, ultimate upside of the project. You know, once we're, once we're uh, self the mine is self sufficient from a financial point of view. Sure. Um, uh, and, and Brian, can you tell our listeners what the sort of average cash cash cost per ounce of production, and how much gold are you projecting to to uh, produce during this six point three year mine life? Um, the um, we will mine 256,000 ounces, and the average uh, cash cost uh, over the life of the mine uh, is $415 an ounce. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people can do a little bit of arithmetic, assuming price. Uh, of course, nothing remains stagnant, and as uh, as the price of gold rises, you may also see a rise in cost. But I, but again, this is why I pay so much attention to the real price of gold relative to the nominal price of gold. So. The margins look very, very good, obviously, uh, at this point in time. I, I, I think you said that there's 700 to 750 ton per day mill capacity, uh, Brian. So I'm, I'm guessing that if you're able to find more gold and if you're able to gain access and mine that out, you could actually put considerably more ore through the mill and get more production out of the existing facility that you have there, right? Well, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, you can just do the math fairly simply from 450 to 700 tons a day is a substantial expansion. Yeah. And um, if we have, and we, we, we do have a number of uh, expiration targets uh, beyond just the, the down dip, the whole ore body's open down dip. Um, but there's a number of other expiration targets where we have gotten encouragement in the past that we'll be addressing over the next couple of years. And if uh, we get success there, um, We've designed the plant so that a parallel circuit can be put down uh, fairly inexpensively and fairly simply. Uh, it's been designed to do that, and uh, so we could we could double that capacity, um, you know, fairly uh, fairly easily. So, um, um, yes, there's there's a significant uh, upside already in the plant for capacity, but then you know, if if required, uh, based on the, uh, the the high margins um, that this mine will experience, you know, it could self-fund an expansion pretty easily. Okay. Well, anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we conclude our conversation today? Um, well, um, yes. There's a, we, we, we stand at the cusp of making this transition from an exploration and development company to being an, a producing company, and that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty rare um, event. Um, I, I looked into... Uh, uh, some databases at, at mines that are, you know, the size of Copperstone or roughly the size of Copperstone or a little bit larger. There are only 180 of them in the world today. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. those are very old mines. They're, they're not modern produced. They're not, you know, modern transitions into production. And, or, or, you know, they're, they're mines that belong to big companies that have 10 or 12 or 15 mines. Yeah. So when um, a, a junior company like ours makes this transition is a is a really rare event um, worldwide, and we're about to achieve that. Well, it is rare, and then the question is, can you uh, really expand and make this a lot larger with the uh, exploration? Of course, that remains to be seen, but there, there are some, as I understand it, some, some very good exploration. There is some very good exploration potential there, so uh, I guess this is something uh, that people should pay attention to, but one of the things, Brian, assuming that you are successful in producing positive cash flows is you'll be able to uh, to explore and develop this project without continually diluting shareholder interest, and that is, I think, one of the biggest risks for the junior mining sector. 
So, is there, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Brian, for uh, sharing your story with our listeners. I think it is a very exciting story, and it's 61 cents. It certainly seems like something that uh, investors might want to take a look at, do their own due diligence, uh, pass it by their own uh, financial experts. Uh, that's always a good idea as well. Uh, but uh, gold mining, I like to say, is in a bull market of a lifetime. I honestly believe that. And uh, Brian's company here is, is a very interesting example. Uh, as he says, though, not very often that companies transition from exploration to production. So uh, congratulations on that, and I hope we'll have you back sometime soon to report on your progress again. Thanks, Brian, for being with us. Thank you, Jay, and I'll look forward to that. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, with Amir Adnani. He's going to talk about uh, uranium energy, about the uh, nuclear power industry and uranium energy's uh, evolution into production, an exploration company also that is now turned producer but in the uranium space. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Amir Adnani. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources, Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring free gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. Or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Merix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold Deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American. Bonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. 
Lucky Strike Resources Limited conducts due diligence drilling on the claim with a historical resource of 1.5 billion tons of coal in Mongolia. The project is directly north of China, where the coal consumption tripled in the last 10 years to 3.2 billion tons in 2010. Lucky Strike's management team has a proven track record, having contributed significantly in the building of a multi-billion dollar company operating in China. Please visit our website at www.luckystrikeresources.com and get in on this investment opportunity at the ground floor. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love arrives. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here with Amir and Nanny. He's the president and CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. It's the most recent new producer of uranium in the United States, and this is a company that trades in the United States under the symbol UEC. Approximately 73.5 million shares outstanding. $3.25 is a recent price, I've noticed, and giving it a market cap of around $240 million. For the sake of full disclosure, I should mention that Uranium Energy Corporation is a current recommendation in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, the company is not currently a sponsor to this show, but it has been in the past. Welcome, Amir, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. It's great to be back again. Really good to have you. Uh, you uh, have had a lot of success with Uranium Energy, at least developing the company. The share price isn't, I'm sure, where you'd like to see it, but sometimes uh, you just have to really worry about building the company, and ultimately the share price will probably take care of it itself. I want to ask you about Uranium Energy, which I believe is, uh, as I said, I think is the, is the latest producer, new producer in the United States. Is that right? That's right. We're- U.S. uranium producer, not just in the U.S., but in North America, I would imagine, too. Okay, so I want to get into uranium energy, but before we begin to focus on your company specifically, I would like uh, you to talk a little bit about the prospects for nuclear power in the United States, and with that, of course, the prospects for uranium production and uranium mining in the United States. First of all, tell our listeners how much of America's current electricity comes from nuclear power. About 20% of current power generation, electricity generation in the U.S. is by way of nuclear power. Okay. And there are uh, 104 nuclear reactors that are currently operating in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, how much uranium is consumed in the United States each year by those uh, power plants? These 104 nuclear reactors consume approximately 55 million pounds of yellow cake or uranium annually. Okay, and how much uranium is being produced in the United States, um, including the production that you're just adding, your your company is adding? 
Yeah, it should, you know, it should amount to about maybe 4 million pounds, 4 to 4.5 million pounds per year. And so you can see with uh, 55 million pounds of annual demand versus only 4 to 4.5 million pounds of annual domestic production, uh, there's definitely, uh, you can say, greater dependence on foreign uranium in the U.S. than there is on foreign oil. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, I always felt was uh, truly the, uh, the business opportunity that Uranium Energy as an American company is pursuing is the fact that developing more domestic sources of uranium uh, and from a mining uh, supply point of view is so critical to energy independence moving forward and security of supply. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing uh, this be a theme across all energy industries, not just uranium mining and nuclear, mm-hmm. uh, but it's something that is uh, not often discussed because, as you can appreciate, uh, nuclear seems to arouse uh, uh, fear in people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's cultural. It's, it's, it's really uh, nuclear weapons, you can say, and so nuclear power sometimes gets grouped into the same, uh, yeah. into the same category. But, yeah. uh, uh, but that's, uh, that's really the dynamic of nuclear power. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this post-Japanese tragedy era. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, well, where is this shortfall coming from now, and how long can this significant, you know, we're talking 50, 51 million pounds of shortfall here, how long can that be filled with imports from overseas, or wherever, and where is it coming from? Yeah, the the shortfall for a very long time, I mean, ever since the end of the Cold War, uh, the shortfall has been uh, has been uh, provided by way of utilizing uh, both civilian and military inventories of uranium controlled by governments, mainly the governments of the U.S. and Russia. Mm-hmm. And the biggest chunk of the so-called secondary supplies has been um, the dismantling of old uh, Russian nuclear warheads and taking highly enriched uranium from these warheads mm-hmm. and blending it down and getting it to uh, commercial-grade material. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been uh, a, a real important uh, part of secondary supplies for a very long time. You can appreciate, though, secondary supplies and even nuclear missiles are uh, finite in quantity. Mm-hmm. And so they're not an increasing source of supply. They're really a, a shrinking source of supply. And uh, they've been getting smaller every year. The deal with the Russians to dismantle their, their old warheads uh, runs out in 2013, which is really mm-hmm. just around the corner. That takes um, roughly 25 million pounds of uranium out of the market. If you go back to the U.S. demand, U.S. demand being 20, uh, 55 million pounds per year, mm. almost half of that demand has been uh, uh, filled through these dismantled uh, Russian nuclear warheads. Mm. Uh, and that's disappearing in, uh, in a year and a half time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so it's, it's not a sustainable way of meeting our demands, I guess, Shay, is the key mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Well, two, 2013 and... and you know, in my sense is that the relationship between the United States and Russia has not gotten better since the end of the Cold War. If anything, it uh, would seem to be more hostile now than it was immediately after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, and the decline of the, of, of, uh, the USSR. Uh, where, I mean, is it likely that there, I mean, is there, is, there, is, is there some of this source left after 2013? And if so, 
is it likely this agreement could be continued? You know, I don't think anyone expects that to happen. Uh, the, the Russian government and Russian officials themselves, just starting with them, uh, have uh, have announced a number of times that there's no continuation of that arrangement. And um, uh, every industry analyst or observer that uh, I've spoken to uh, basically feels and shares the same view. And I don't think it's just geopolitical issues. I think it's economics as well. Mm-hmm. The, the cost associated with uh, uh, downblending highly enriched uranium into low enriched material is, uh, is something that takes to be taken into account. And mm-hmm. a lot of that cost has been subsidized by the Russians uh, for quite some time. They're not interested in subsidizing uh, these costs anymore just mm-hmm. so uh, U.S. utilities can get uh, uh, uranium to uh, power their reactors. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think it's both economic considerations of uh, using secondary supplies that doesn't make sense uh, and also... Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's geopolitical issues that always go into these things. And uh, you also have to look at uh, the Russian government's actions in the last year as it pertains to uranium mining. You know, if there were ample supplies of secondary material sitting in the, in the Russians' uh, you know, warehouses, they wouldn't be actively out there buying uranium mines or uranium mining operations. Mm-hmm. You look at it over the last year, the Russian government, uh, through Rosatom and ARMZ, which are two state-run companies in Russia that are focused on nuclear power and uranium mining, have acquired over $2 billion in cash worth of exposure to uranium mining assets in Kazakhstan and in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so clearly they're positioning themselves as well in the long run for further exposure and access to uranium coming from mines as opposed to uranium coming from warheads and missiles or inventories. Those sources, I think, are, have really been depleted and are not going to be a sustainable way of meeting growing demand for uranium over the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well, Amir, you mentioned the, the shortfall in the, in the U.S. supply. Uh, to meet those 55 million tons of uh, pounds, I should say, per year. Uh, what does it look like globally now in the supply and demand going forward? That's one question. Secondly, has the growth projections in, in places like China been decreased a bit now given the tragedies that took place in Japan? Uh, as far as uranium goes on a worldwide basis, there also is a, a meaningful supply imbalance. Uh, world wide demand for uranium on an annual basis is approximately 180 million pounds. Mm-hmm. And mine production uh, globally adds up to about 130, 135 million pounds. Mm. And, and so right there you have about uh, a 40 to 45 million mm. per year shortfall. That's quite significant. Um, you know, there isn't uh, a single mine or two that can uh, just uh, be turned on and cover that shortfall. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, some of the world's biggest mines that are at a development stage, when they come online, uh, won't uh, won't be able to completely cover that imbalance on their own. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about the need for higher uranium prices to stimulate industry-wide increase in mine construction so that uh, a whole new generation of uranium mines can come online and help uh, uh, basically fill the supply imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, the prospects for expanding the world's nuclear capacity 
uh, it's still geared, geared towards uh, uh, growth and important growth. Uh, as we speak, there are 62 nuclear reactors under construction worldwide. That number has not changed uh, post-Fukushima. Pre-Fukushima, mm. there were the same number of reactors under construction. Mm. So with 62 reactors under construction worldwide, this guarantees near-term growth to worldwide nuclear capacity. Mm-hmm. The International Atomic Energy Agency just came out two weeks ago with their latest kind of post-Fukushima estimate on number of worldwide reactors that they project to be built over the next 20 years. The number they put out there was 350 new nuclear reactors they expect will still be built mm. post-Fukushima. So you look at it today, today there are 420 reactors operating worldwide. Mm-hmm. And now the IAEA has come out and put an estimate that in the next 20 years you're going to see another 350 reactors to be built. Again, a post-Fukushima estimate. I mean, it's nearly an 80 or 90 percent increase uh, to uh, current uh, uh, operating reactors worldwide. These are very important numbers. I mean, these numbers show that uh, growth is definitely uh, a nuclear industry's future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having said all of that, uh, there's no doubt that uh, the events in Japan uh, were a setback for the nuclear industry, uh, but a setback that I think the industry will uh, learn from and become stronger as a result of it. Many people will uh, will agree, and I think in your previous shows uh, we talked about the fact that um, uh, the events in uh, Three Mile Island, for example, in Chernobyl, but particularly Three Mile Island, uh, made U.S. Uh, utilities and nuclear react, uh, reactor operators uh, uh, forced them into understanding and, and basically better implementing safety protocols and safety procedures that has given the nuclear industry in the U.S. the gold standard for uh, safety and operational efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, no industry, no major power generation industry is perfect, and obviously it has uh, issues that it needs to uh, address and, and learn from. Uh, but I think when it's all said and done, um, uh, hopefully people can put things in perspective. And, uh, you know, the real tragedy in Japan was the fact that uh, over 10,000 people uh, were killed and uh, homes were destroyed and, uh, uh, and, and and there was a real damage to the economy. The nuclear reactors didn't cause that damage. The nuclear mm-hmm. reactors didn't cause that tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they caused a lot of stress for a lot of us. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but at the end of the day, they weren't uh, responsible for the billions of dollars in economic damage and, uh, and the thousands of lives that were lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think moving forward, there's definitely lessons to be learned, and I think uh, that this was a setback for the industry. We've noticed uh, negative results of the setback politically in places like Germany and Switzerland, where now over the next 15 to 20 years they want to phase out their nuclear reactors. Um, and, uh, and so this is, uh, these are all, I think, uh, uh, issues we need to be very um, aware of and talk about it. But I think when you kind of add it all up, uh, to me, I think it's still quite clear because the numbers speak for themselves. The numbers show us that we still have a very healthy uh, nuclear power industry worldwide. There's a very healthy growth profile ahead of the industry with number of nuclear reactors expected to almost double in the next 20 years. And we have a very noticeable uh, supply imbalance uh, in terms of current uranium mining worldwide versus current reactor requirements. And that gap is only going to widen because uh, demand is going to increase as these new nuclear reactors that are under construction and expected to come online 
um, uh, pull uh, demand f for uranium higher. Mm -hmm. So there's well, uh, there's a real there's a real case here to be made, Jay. Mm -hmm. Well, Amir, there's you said there's 420 nuclear reactors uh, in operation now. The U.S. has a lot has has quite a few of those. And they're old. They're getting old. They're aging. Is there a possibility that some of them will be taken out of service? Sure. Uh, and uh, and what are the prospects for new nuclear power plants being built in the U.S., where I think it's very, very difficult to get permitting and financing and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think we're going to have to just, uh, you know, see in terms of which reactors get license extensions and which ones get phased out. I think mm -hmm. there's one... Um, up in your neck of the woods or north of where you are, uh, yeah, that, uh, on a that, fall. Uh, exactly, that has uh, definitely received some uh, uh, concerns around it, and uh, there's a chance that something like that could be could be phased out. But um, recently, there was um, uh, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, gave a 20-year license extension for the Palo Verde nuclear reactors in Arizona, which are actually the, the largest nuclear reactors in the U.S. They received their 20-year license extensions, mm -hmm. and so with mm -hmm. 104 nuclear reactors in the U.S., um, I think expectations are that you know most of these reactors will receive their 20-year license extensions. Of course, they have to go through the various uh, considerations uh, and regulatory uh, issues before these licenses are, are granted. But I, you know, I think expectations again are that you're going to see a majority of these reactors. Uh, Receive extensions, and I, I don't mm -hmm. think we would anyone would be surprised if a number of them don't receive extensions and are phased out. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, from a standpoint of new build, the U.S. isn't a, a, a major market for nuclear growth, but it's still important to highlight the fact that there has been uh, roughly 50 billion dollars uh, provided by way of government loan guarantees mm -hmm. uh, that government has ratified now. And that's mm -hmm. available for constructing new nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. And the first couple of loans under this program uh, were uh, were given to uh, um, uh, Southern to develop their new nuclear reactors uh, down in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those are reactors that are currently under construction. So as we speak, there are reactors under construction in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, but obviously it doesn't compare to, let's say, that the 25 or 27 reactors that are under construction in China alone. Mm -hmm. Of course. Uh, well, so there's, well, there's, there's, that, there's that difference, but I think it's important that there, is, there still is that, you know, the, the, the government support for nuclear sure, industry. Sure, And these loans have been provided, and reactor, you know, there, there is a reactor under construction. I think that's still right. positive. Right. Well, Amir, what is the price of the uranium or U-308 as it's known in the trade now? Right now, it's about fifty-two dollars and seventy-five cents or so on the spot market, okay. uh, and uh, sixty-four dollars per pound in uh, the long term, or based on a long-term contract. Okay, and you know that is with uh, as we're drawing down stockpiles, and so one has to wonder, going forward, to what extent uh, might there be some major new supply from, you know, from Canada or someplace, some major really rich mine that could. That could meet this uh, this shortfall, or, or or what's the sense? I mean, where can the price of uranium go? I do know that in terms of the total cost, the uranium, the raw material that's used to generate nuclear power, is a very low percentage of the total cost, so that it's not that price sensitive. So you can see much higher uranium prices, I believe, and not affect the economics very much of nuclear power plants. Is that right? That's uh, absolutely right, and. 
I think the key issue for nuclear reactors is to make sure they have uranium because there's no substitute for uranium and to ins- and not to worry about uh, how much they pay for a pound of uranium. It's more mm-hmm. about access to supply than, uh, than cost. The end user yeah. is not price sensitive. Well, that's, that's true from the uranium or from the nuclear power producer's point of view. However, as a producer of uranium, which uranium energy is, that is not an insignificant issue. But one of the things that really sort of, I was just looking over some of your um, uh, latest releases, Amir, uh, I know one of the criticisms that I heard of uranium energy before you started production was that your cost estimates were too high. In fact, your cost estimates are below the ones that you were talking about and that I was talking about in my newsletter. I saw that you're producing uranium at something like $13 a pound so far. Is that something that's likely to continue with uh, uranium energy? Well, you know, Jay, I think um, anytime you're a pre-production company, um, it's uh, it's important to uh, uh, it's important to obviously come out and ultimately you know show show results. Uh, uh-huh. and we we didn't debate too much about where our costs were going to be with the uh, analysts and with mm-hmm. the market because we felt well, you know, what's the point? I mean, ultimately, mm-hmm. you got to deliver the goods and uh, mm-hmm. and let the let the results speak for themselves. So mm-hmm. you know, we always felt that. Uh, down in Texas with our operations, uh, especially leveraging uh, uh, in-situ recovery technology to, to get uranium out. Mm-hmm. But we always felt this would be uh, a good low-cost way of mining uranium. And, um, and so far, after uh, seven, eight months of uh, production down there, uh, we've managed to uh, produce uranium at an average cost of about $13 per pound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're... Um, uh, you know, this is in line with our expectations. I mean, you know, our, again, our expectations were that we'd be, uh, you know, below $20 per pound, and we're, we're definitely in that range. And, you know, moving forward, we expect this could be um, definitely sort of a, a range that would be sustainable for the company. Now, we are still early in the game. You know, in the mining business, uh, it's a long-term business, and it takes companies sometimes a couple of years just to ramp up. And so... You know, for us, I think we've come a long way in eight months. Uh, we still have a lot uh, of work to do, a lot of uh, sort of efficiencies and a lot of improvements we're trying to make um, and um, challenges to overcome. Mm-hmm. But I think right now when you look at our company, we can definitely, uh, we can definitely say that, look, on the back of real results, uh, we're amongst uh, the world's lowest-cost uranium producers. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Amir, tell our listeners what you expect. To, what are you projecting for production? How much uranium are you producing right now? And what are your projections for production going forward? Yeah, Jay, as you recall, we have a hub-and-spoke strategy, and so the plan is that we can utilize our uh, centrally located and built uh, uranium processing plant in South Texas called Hobson. Mm-hmm. And we can develop multiple satellite uranium projects that we would uh, extract uranium from using in-situ recovery technology, and we would uh, process it all at a central plant. This would end up having uh, very significant capital and cost savings. Currently, we're only mining from one satellite project uh, mm-hmm. named Palangana in South Texas. And mm-hmm. through the period ending July 31st, we had produced 150,000 pounds of uranium mm-hmm. Uh, at, uh, uh, from this operation over, over six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so moving forward over the next uh, uh, 15 to 18 months, 
We are planning to bring a second satellite project uh, into production. This is our Goliath project, uh, and we're planning on acquiring additional satellite projects. And so ultimately, over the next 15 to 18 months, we'd like to be in a position where we can increase our production um, to roughly 1 million pounds per year, and this mm-hmm. will be accomplished by way of having um, uh, two satellite projects in production. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, would all, it would obviously all be driven by uh, uh, the ability to increase and ramp up production over this time frame. But that's the goal that we're working towards, and we have the capacity at the plant to, to handle all of this, so we're not looking at uh, significant capital inc- uh, requirements to, mm-hmm. to execute and realize this. Mm-hmm. But again, this is, uh, this is something, Jay, that we have now uh, a track record with and, and mm-hmm. proof of concept. I mean, proof mm-hmm. of concept is so important in the, in the mining business. Sure. And now as we talk about expanding our hub-and-spoke strategy, we have executed a key part of it, which is getting it started and at least showing, from, uh, showing results from the, first, uh, from the first satellite operation, showing results after you, we, we've shipped it to our processing plant and we've recovered uranium and we've dried uranium and we've drummed uranium and hopefully soon sell some of our uranium. Since we haven't actually made any sales, we've stockpiled all of our material. All of this gives us proof of concept, something that uh, not too many companies in the uranium industry have because, as, as you know, there's only maybe a handful of companies in North America that actually mine uranium. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, Amir, people can certainly, who are listening to this, can you know put their pencil to the paper, a million pounds, if you're able to produce at under $20 a pound, and if it's going for 50 or $60, they can uh, you know get a sense of what kind of cash flow you can generate from the project you're producing now at $13 a pound. I noticed that you're doing, you've made a couple of acquisitions. You've acquired a property in, uh, I think, in South America, and Bolivia, I believe it was, and also... Uh, acquired a company called Concentric Energy. Are you looking to uh, expand, and are those uh, are those prospects also in situ leach projects? Uh, what we have down in uh, well, I mean, let me step back for a second. Uh, Post Fukushima, there's been there's been a very difficult environment for uranium companies, but mm-hmm. smaller uranium companies, difficult mm-hmm. to raise money, difficult to get traction with investors, and so the sector's really fallen out of favor. Mm-hmm. Um, this to us repre- uh, represents a, a very attractive opportunity to mm-hmm. buy projects or assets at attractive discounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that's, um, that's the thought process to begin with, is that mm-hmm. this is a good opportunity for UEC to uh, become a stronger and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a richer company when it comes to projects and resources. And doing so, we've pursued a couple of acquisitions, as you pointed out. The first acquisition uh, in Paraguay, which is a fairly large land package, almost uh, 250,000 acres, mm-hmm. is a project that had about $30 million of historic exploration work spent on it, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and that is an ISR amenable target. And so mm-hmm. we're quite excited about that. We're actually, as we speak, Jay, have started a 10,000-meter drill program down there, mm-hmm. and um, we hope to have that program wrapped up in the next uh, uh, two to three months, and uh, that gives us news flow and development on a totally new front, and of course with an ISR project that is an excellent technical fit for, for our team. Mm-hmm. Um, the second project that we acquired in Arizona uh, by way of acquiring a company called Concentric Energy is that what I'd like to say is a historically significant project. It's a, it's a former open pit mine 
there were a lot of drilling and feasibility and, and just dollars spent on the project. I think if you were to reproduce the work that was done on this project historically, you can say there's about 60 to $70 million of work done on the project. Mm -hmm. And we acquired it for about $7 million mm -hmm. uh, in cash and stock or whatnot. So, again, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a good acquisition of a project that has good long-term potential. It can become mm -hmm. a meaningful resource for the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, Arizona is an important state because um, there's uh, current uranium mining in Arizona. you got these nuclear reactors that just got their 20-year license extensions yeah, there. Right. Besides Texas, Arizona is also a very good business-friendly and mining-friendly mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. And so we felt that uh, by increasing our exposure to Arizona, we were also gaining a foothold in a second state after Texas where we, have, we would have an important presence uh, and, uh, and, and basically projects and resource space that can give us a platform for future development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amir, we're really out of time almost, but I do want to ask you, you said uh, that you have not sold your uranium production yet, and, and I, I think I also noticed that you have arranged a long-term contract with some buyer. Is that correct? And, and why have you not sold your uranium so far? Well, really, we're, because we're a, a new producer and um, we wanted to also build an inventory after mm -hmm. some of our initial production, from a business decision point of view, mm -hmm. we stockpiled our initial production. And then in July, we announced our first uh, sales contract, uh, under which we can basically uh, you know, put material to the buyer that we've now signed a contract with mm -hmm. uh, anytime starting uh, uh, basically this year this fiscal year for the company, and we're on a July 31st fiscal. Um, but we still actually haven't put any material to the buyer and uh, actually record a sale and hence realize revenue. We did say in a press release we just recently put out on our operation results and year-end results, Jay, that we do expect to um, make our first sale this calendar year or before the end of this calendar year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's something that, you know, to kind of look look towards uh, in the near term from our company. And that would be an important catalyst for the company, I think, because it will show yet another kind of milestone that we've reached. Uh, and, uh, you know, to be able to go from obviously start a production to strong production results and then actually sell the material and record the revenue, it's the part about selling the material and recording revenue we haven't done yet as part of our new uh, transition into a producer and hopefully with us uh, realizing that soon before the end of this calendar year, uh, we can uh, kind of hit the mark there and, uh, you know, look forward to continuing to make more, more sales as we go along. But, again, that's the key difference here, Jay, is that there are hardly there, – there aren't too many companies that can actually uh, produce and sell uranium today at a competitive cost with good margins. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what truly makes UEC a survivor mm -hmm. in a difficult environment, this kind of post-Fukushima environment that's mm -hmm. been challenging for the sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that also has given us the, the ability to make acquisitions and become a stronger company uh, because, um, like I said, there's uh, a lot of opportunities out there and the sector has been out of favor. So mm -hmm. this truly has become one of those contrarian plays you like to talk about, mm -hmm. you know, those things Absolutely. that uh, they're down and out and no one loves them, and uh, uranium post-Fukushima has, uh, using a Canadian term, if I can say, has been put in the penalty box. Yeah. Well, Amir, you you have um you know, a market cap of around 300 or around 240 million dollars. Uh do, do you have any peer comparisons you can make? 
It's difficult, uh, I guess, aren't that difficult, many Difficult, you know, it's difficult because, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're a producer now, and so to some extent um, it's difficult to compare, let's say, to exploration or development stage companies, yeah. uh, but yet we're not a mature producer yet, so it's yeah. uh, it's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's early stage to make comparisons of us, let's say, to the to the more established producers. So I, I really think we're in the league of our own right now. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's it's sort of difficult to to compare you, but it certainly is it certainly is nice to see a mining company uh, develop and produce profitably as you're doing, obviously. So I want to thank you very much, Amir, for coming on the show and sharing your insights into the industry and your uh, your progress with uranium energy. Well, folks, that's as I say all the time we have. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with Patrick Laracy. He's the chairman and CEO of Vulcan Minerals, and he's going to talk to us about the enormous supply of shale gas in the United States that has the potential to make the Saudi Arabian oil much less important to our national economy. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Mr. Laracy. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Merrix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatsjab Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. Or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. 